If you were a Qin, Q-I-N, around 215 BCE, life was pretty good. You'd just recently set up the first of China's major dynasties, unified through war most of your neighbors, and set up the first Chinese emperor. There was just one major problem. You needed a better place to graze all your horses, because the part of China you ruled was entirely the wrong sort of place for horses to graze. In fact, it was so bad, you practically had to import new horses every year from elsewhere to replace the ones that died because horses just didn't like to make new horses themselves where you ruled. Fortunately, it seemed like this problem could be pretty easily solved. Let's all just ride over the hill and take all that wonderful pasture land from those nasty barbarians. They don't need it. They're barbarians. Nomad barbarians, actually. They can just move somewhere else. It's what they do, after all. So off we ride, and off they go. And now we own what they used to have, and let's build a wall just to make sure they don't come back. A really long wall. A great wall, if you will. The first one. Not the one we're familiar with today. Well, that certainly showed them. And for a little while, it certainly seemed like it had. But then, your chin and your empire is only going to last for about 15 years before your emperor dies, and the ensuing chaos means the Han take over, which they do. Problem is, those barbarian nomads to the north haven't forgotten, and they don't much care if you're Qin or Han, you're still on their pasture land. And what they've been doing while everyone else was fighting was fighting too. Except they were fighting to consolidate power, which they have, rather than squabbling about who should be in charge and breaking up the kingdom, which is what you did. And because the barbarian nomads were consolidating power, a lot of those other little barbarian nomadic tribes have suddenly disappeared. Not because they were all killed off, but because they've been joining up with the one that got run off the pasture lands in the first place. And now they've started calling themselves the Zhongnu. They are not very nice at all. For instance, the first recorded Chan Yu, or leader, of the tribe was Taoman. He had several, let's call them opportunities, to deal with beyond just the Qin thing. For one thing, there was the matter of succession. His eldest son, Maktun, was out of favor, and though he should have inherited the throne, Taoman decided that his younger son, by his favorite concubine, should do so instead. But how to get rid of Maktung? Easy. Send him as a hostage to one of the enemy tribes you are currently fighting, which was certainly one form of diplomacy. You'd send off important people to be hostages among the people you were promising not to attack, on the assumption that if you did attack them, they would kill off those important hostages in retaliation, and your favorite accountant would die. Anyway, Talman sent off his eldest son to be a hostage among one of the nomad tribes his people were promising not to attack. And then, and here's the really clever bit, he attacked that tribe almost immediately, so that they would kill all the hostages in retaliation. Brilliant! No more son! What could possibly go wrong? Well, what could go wrong is the son you are trying to get rid of could turn out to be way better than you're giving him credit for. He could break free of his captors, and he could steal the best horse in the enemy camp, and he could ride hell for leather out of the camp and back home, 
inconveniently becoming a hero to the people in the process. And if that happened, well, you'd have no choice then but to bestow honors upon him and give him absolute command of 10,000 horsemen. Also, what could go wrong is that your son might not be as dumb as you think and might remember what it was you just did to him and then have a very careful think about revenge. And Mokhtin did. He took those 10,000 men, all mounted archers, and he drilled them. And he invented a whistling arrow. And he trained his 10,000 men to always, always, always shoot at whatever target his whistling arrow is shot at. As in, no, seriously, I mean it, shoot at whatever the whistling arrow shoot at, or I'll behead anyone who doesn't understand that very simple concept, really. There's a deer. Here goes a whistling arrow right at it. Who didn't shoot? Off with their heads. There's my favorite horse. Here goes a whistling arrow right at it. Who didn't shoot? Off with your heads. There's my favorite wife. Here goes a whistling arrow right at her. Who didn't shoot? Off with your heads. Does anyone still not understand how this works? No? Good. There's my favorite father. Here goes a whistling arrow right at him. And so Mokton became the new Chan Yu and conquered all the tribes around him and made them all into one big group called the Zhang Nu. And they rode out and took all the pastures and then some back from the now Han dynasty. And while he was at it, Mokton made them pay tributes and offer up their daughters for marriage. And really, it is in part thanks to Mokton and the Zhang Nu that Mongolia, where they were from, was going to be such a huge problem for China later. Because maybe, just maybe, the Zhang Nu were the forerunners of the Hun, as in Attila the. All because of horses, really. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Last week, we promised, after discussing the famous Marco Polo and his famous book, that we were going to spend the rest of the month talking about the Silk Road, and we will. It's just that first, we have to talk about horses. And not in the way we talked about cows last year. No, the cow episodes are, forgive the expression, a horse of a different color. As is, for that matter, last year's discussion of white horses. No, we need to talk about horses first, because the Han had a really hard time dealing with the Zhongnu. See, they'd make these treaties and marry off their daughters to seal the deal and secure all these promises both sides were making. And then the Zhongnu, first under Mokden and then under his son Lao Sheng, would just ignore the treaties whenever it suited them and go raiding over the Yellow River into Han territory, taking whatever they wanted and generally wrecking the place up good. The wall the Han built was just about useless for keeping them out, as we discussed briefly last week. Well, you can only take so much of that before you run out of patience. And if you were Han Emperor Wu, your patience was probably pretty limited anyway. Seeing that he couldn't beat the Zhongnu himself, Emperor Wu decided to send an explorer named Zheng Qian into the unknown lands to the west in hopes of finding the Zhongnu's perennial punching bags, the Yu Zhi. The Yu Zhi, you see, had been in the way when the Zhongnu had decided to move west a bit and, as a consequence, got themselves kicked out of some fertile lands 
and had their king beheaded and his skull fashioned into a drinking cup just as a reminder that the Yuji had really been in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Yuji might reasonably be expected to have an axe to grind. Wu thought an alliance with the Yuji against the Zhang Niu was a good idea, and it certainly probably would have been if not for two things. First, Zhang Qian explored himself directly into getting captured by Lao Sheng and company. This was a reasonably likely outcome, since Zhang had to cross through Zhang Yu territory in order to get to the Yuji on the other side. Although, given what happened when he was captured, he probably could have afforded to go around. Remember we pointed out how mean and nasty the Zhang Yu were? Well, as punishment for being what amounted to a foreign spy carrying a message to the enemy, Zhang Qian was taken as a slave, but then allowed to take a wife from among the Zhang Yu, have some children, and live among them for nearly 13 years, gaining the trust of their leaders. And really, that doesn't seem like such a terrible fate, comparatively speaking. But it did amount to 13 years of not getting the mission done, which led to problem number two. See, by the time Zhang, his wife, his kids, and a couple of retainers finally managed to escape slavery and captivity and meet up with the Yu Ji, they just weren't interested. At all. The Yu Ji had got used to things the way they were and had settled in quite well with no desire to go stirring up trouble with the Zhang Yu at all. Thank you very much. We're all good here. In all, Zhang Qian spent a year among the Yu Ji and accomplished almost nothing. Almost. See, the one thing he did do was take copious notes about what he saw way out there in the supposedly barbaric wilds. Everything from culture to lifestyle to their economy, he made note of. And when he eventually headed back home to finally report in, which was delayed by being captured by the Zhang Yu again, he brought with him a wealth of information. Now, there were a lot of interesting things in Zhang Qian's report. And he was the first in China to see many parts of the world, including bits of northern India, the remnants of a portion of Alexander the Great's empire, Mesopotamia, and more. But the thing that really captured everyone's interest was the horses. We pretty much know all we need to know about horses. As we said, this isn't the cow episode. We're not digging into all the things horses do for us, how they were domesticated, how they became the huge variety of creatures they are today. We know about transport and work and war, and all the little ways that horses made the lives of humans so much easier for thousands of years. That's not what concerns us here. What does concern us, as we mentioned in the opening to this episode, is how poorly horses did in and around the China of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries BCE. The land available just wasn't suited to raising and maintaining horses. The Chinese soil lacked an element called selenium, though the Chinese probably didn't know this was the reason their native horses were so, well, pathetic. Without selenium, horses are weak and their growth is stunted. There was no way they could carry a fully kitted out Chinese soldier, so any new horses the Chinese needed had to come from the Mongolian steppes and the Tibetan plateau in a near constant supply. But these horses were little better. They were little more than large-headed, scruffy-looking ponies. They were short, short-legged horses whose prime feature was durability in desert climates and not much else. 
So you can imagine the excitement in the Han court when Zhang Qian came back and started talking about these amazing horses he had seen and heard about in a place called Daiyuan. In fact, Zhang's actual words were that the place has many fine horses which sweat blood. Their forebears were foaled from heavenly horses. Well, you can imagine the reaction this had. An entire mythology sprang up in China almost overnight about the tall, fast, and altogether amazing Arab horses Zhang had seen. They came from heaven, descended from dragons, and came out of the caves of the Yuji, backs tiger-striped bones like dragon wings. Nothing would do but to have as many of this new kind of horse as possible in the Han kingdom. Why, with enough of these blood-sweating horses, the Zhongnu could finally be eliminated. Unfortunately, the people of Daiyuan were unwilling to part with them, figuring quite reasonably that the Han were too far away through terrain that was too treacherous and across lands too hostile to them to ever seriously bother the Daiyuan. And for the most part, they were right. A dozen emissaries were sent, and a dozen emissaries were soundly rejected and treated exceptionally poorly by the Daiyuan, until the Han Emperor lost his patience and decided just to take the horses by force. But conditions along the way were so bad and the Han so ill-prepared that an unsuccessful first attempt saw the forces arrive in Daiyuan in pretty bad shape before fighting even started. So much so that they didn't even bother having the fight with what was left of their army. The Han just turned around and went back home. But the second time... The second time they got it right, mostly by sending overwhelming numbers from the get-go so that even as attrition diminished those numbers, the Han still managed to arrive with enough people to do the job. And in this way, they finally secured a few thousand Arab horses to take back home. And thus did the War of the Heavenly Horses come to an end. Eventually, of course, relations normalized as time passed. By the time of the Tang Dynasty in China, it became regular practice for outlying people from the north and west to send horses in trade or as diplomatic gifts. Although, when the Tang hit a bit of a speed bump in the 8th century and were forced to purchase horses to replace those lost in a close-fought rebellion, the nomads they bought them from charged a premium, somewhere around 40 bolts of silk per horse. And this is where the Silk Road begins. Because it wasn't just about horses, but also about what horses needed and what people would exchange for the horses and things they needed. And the other big thing they had in Daiyuan that people wanted, in addition to the horses, was stuff to feed the horses. Alfalfa. Alfalfa was probably first cultivated in what is now Iran. When Persians invaded Greek territory, they brought alfalfa with them and for very good reason. Alfalfa is, if grown in the right conditions, capable of producing up to 12 crops a year for as much as 10 years before it needs replanting. That means that slightly more than a half acre of alfalfa could feed three horses for a year without much effort, and it was good for cows, goats, and other domesticated animals as well. If you were interested in the heavenly horses, you were interested in alfalfa. You couldn't keep them without it. Which is why, as the Arab horses spread throughout Eurasia, alfalfa did too. Where the horses went, the alfalfa went. And in exchange for all these horses and their food, 
you could ask for and receive the biggies of Chinese culture. Silk, paper, tea, gunpowder, and more. Along with almost anything else they had that you wanted. Mainly, at first, it was the silk that drove the horse trade between China and parts west. And sure, there was some limited trade prior to the horses between China and its neighbors, but it was really the Chinese demand for the superior horses from Eurasia and their willingness to part with goods they hadn't parted with before to get them that really kicks off the whole Silk Road. The Chinese had to have horses, and everyone else had to have silk. There was just no two ways about it. What we call the Silk Road today wasn't called that back when it was in use. No, instead we get the name from a German scientist, geographer, and traveler, Baron Ferdinand von Richthofen. And if that name sounds vaguely familiar to you, it is because he was the uncle to Snoopy's longtime nemesis, the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. Ferdinand von Richthofen made several expeditions into China in the late 19th century, and about 1877 is credited with coming up with the name the Silk Road, based on the heavy trade in silk from China along the routes, and then popularizing it. It didn't really catch on until the early 20th century, though. Basically, it was just a handy way of discussing the entirety of the various overland and seaborne trade routes that had such an impact on the world, without having to name each and every one of them individually each time they were brought up. Richtofen looked, saw lots of silk moving around, and decided that would be the name for it. There were several precursor routes to the Silk Road, including the various trade routes already running between China and its neighbors. Basically, they were already established ancient trade routes that linked up various parts of Eurasia to locations in Greece and Rome, including the Persian Royal Road that ran some 1,700 miles from the Tigris River near the Persian Gulf across Persia to the port of Smyrna in what is now Turkey on the Aegean Sea. When Alexander the Great came along and expanded his empire into Central Asia, the trade and supply routes set up to move goods back and forth in his empire set the final stage for what would become the Silk Road. All it took was China finally deciding someone had something they wanted, and the route set up to trade silk for horses with the Daiyuan linked China in the east with the old Greek and Roman routes of Alexander's in the west. After all, Daiyuan meant Great Ionians. They were part of the Greek kingdoms of Central Asia. Basically, the Chinese just connected the missing dots between the two cultures. Of course, along the way, the Chinese didn't only trade with the Daiyuan. No, there were plenty of other villages and people along the way that would be happy to trade things they had for things China had. And soon enough, the routes running west out of China were very, very lucrative. Naturally, it soon became very important economically to the Han and later the Tang dynasties. So much so that the Han set up regular patrols against banditry and erected a series of watchtowers along the various routes all to make sure they stayed open and travelers bringing goods into China would arrive, while those taking goods out of China did so without treachery. Because while China was happy to trade the products of their country with others, they were not happy to have the means of production leave their very strict control. It could sometimes take weeks for traders to leave with Chinese goods, as they were inspected very carefully to ensure that things like silkworms and their cocoons didn't leave the country accidentally. Even so, trade continued to expand. The Silk Road routes ran from the Greco-Roman city of Antioch across the Syrian desert via Palmyra 
Ctesiphon and Seleucia on the Tigris River, a Mesopotamian city in what is now Iraq. From there, routes passed eastward over the Zagros Mountains to the cities of Ecbatana in Iran and Merv in Turkmenistan, from which additional routes crossed into modern-day Afghanistan and eastward to Mongolia, and then into China where they came to their eastern end at the capital. Parts of the routes also ran over both land and sea into India and around to the Persian Gulf where goods could then be transported up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and taken from there into the Mediterranean for distribution throughout the Roman Empire and further into Europe. And it might sound a lot like everything was happening for the benefit of China, but the whole reason the Silk Routes were so important was that for everything that left China, something else was coming in. Can't trade and get nothing in exchange. That's called giving things away. Trade means that the other guy also gets to unload some of their things on you. And sometimes the things they are unloading aren't just material goods. Sometimes what is being exchanged is ideas. Because while the Silk Route certainly did manage to get Chinese silk and other goods around the world, the real reason they are so important and so well known is because of the cultural, religious, and political changes they made possible. If we were only passing tea around the routes back then, hardly anything would be mentioned about the routes now aside from a parenthetical remark in some tea marketing material. Through the Silk Routes, societies on both ends came into contact with important new concepts. Sure, horses were great and really very useful, but what happened when the Chinese went after the horses and connected their trade routes to those of Alexander the Great and the rest of the world was exactly the same thing that happened in the 1990s as computers in one part of the world began connecting to computers in another. Everyone was suddenly able to share everything with everyone else. And because of this high degree of connectivity with one part of the known world connected to every other part of the known world, something new began to happen. Something which today we call globalization. The free trade of goods, ideas, and capital meant that places which were once very different from each other, often to the point of being incomprehensible, suddenly had things in common and could begin to be able to understand each other. It wasn't and isn't perfect by any means, but today's world would be a very different place, arguably worse than it is, were it not for the influence of the Silk Routes. And all this because of the horse. Thank you for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We're glad you came along. We'll be carrying on our annual Valentine's Day tradition this year of ignoring Valentine's Day and producing more interesting episodes instead. We've not had a special Valentine's episode yet, and we see no reason to start. Many thanks go out once again to our patrons on Patreon. Without their support, this show would have ended a long, long time ago, and we'd like to encourage you to jump on board with them by heading over to gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner at the top of the page. This week's episode was helpfully informed by two very useful books. The first is The Silk Road, A Very Short Introduction by James A. Millward. And the second is The Roman Empire and the Silk Routes, The Ancient World Economy and the Empires of Parthia, Central Asia, and Han China by Raoul McLaughlin. Both are fine resources 
and both will be linked in the show description. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who is not, as far as he knows, descended from any of your great cons. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. There is an erroneous tendency to view empire building by rulers from urban agrarian kingdoms, Alexander, for example, as strategic genius while treating nomad imperial conquests like natural disasters.